Welcome to The Conversation. This is Christy. And hi, I'm Gretchen. This is Conversations to Connect. You're listening to episode 22, where we welcome our guest, Max Strom, who is a teacher, speaker, author, and the creator of Inner Access. Something that's really cool about Max is that he's the reason why we started this podcast in a roundabout sort of way. Christy took her teacher training, her yoga teacher training with Max Strom through Interaccess. And when, was it during one of your trainings or was it later? It was, was during, it was during like our that initial teacher, teacher mm-hmm. training. Like you had during taken a bunch talk. of different mm-hmm. things with him and stuff like that. But she came back from her trip and talked to me and said, you know, Max brought up this thing about there really needs to be a super straightforward, relatable book about mental health. And that people need to access. And this we talked about in the last where we were yes. talking about like F yes, yes or F no or heck yes. And something very simple that could be, you know, left on a coffee table that people could have right. conversations right. around. Easily so pick up, that. read and stuff. And mm-hmm. so Christy said, I had this idea. Do you want to write a book with me? And I was like, hell yes, I want to write a book with you. Before she even knew anything about the book. I knew so nothing. She just, she, is. Yes, she just said, do you want to write a book with me? And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and then... We started so this that process. Still might happen. It still might happen. It's on the table. The reason we got to the podcast was we wrote this book proposal, and one of the parts of it was a marketing part, and it said, you know, like, how are you going to market your book? And a lot of these uh, people that were talking about how to market books were like, do a blog, do a podcast, gain an audience. And we were like, okay, we'll do a podcast. Neither of us know anything about podcasts. <laughs> Neither one of us. I don't even listen to them really very much. So you didn't before. Not at all. And thankfully, Google is a great way to learn how to start a business. And a podcast. <laughs> anything that you want to start. Basically. So if you're saying you don't know how to do something, get yourself a good friend and... Google it. Google it. Yeah. yeah. Get someone that says hell yes to whatever your crazy yes. idea is. <laughs> so... It was really great because if it weren't for Max, Christy and I wouldn't be doing this. Yes. We also said, okay, we'll just kind of give this a shot and see if people even think like that it. this is a good idea. <laughs> I mean, if one or two people listen and they think it's okay, then uh, that's cool. helping. Yeah. Right. The fact that so many people talk to me about it or like other people's clients yes. or everybody at my hair salon. and Well, I have had people reach out. So I have people that I went to college with. I have people that I see or haven't seen in a really long time texting me and messaging me and saying, I found your podcast and I love it. Like, this is really great. So that's always been amazing because we just want to help people. Yes. That's, we're in the helping field. That's yes. what we want to do. Yes. Uh, and to hear people say, you know, I really related to that person in a way and their story helped me to identify with this thing that I want to bring up in therapy or or just to know that I'm not alone in something yeah somebody else is experiencing this that's crazy that's what I go through every day so getting real information out there I think is so important especially as you know need for transformation is really coming out so you see a lot of people and you hear a lot of chatter about, you know, I'm doing inner work or a lot more people are in therapy now, which is great. And they're really trying to look at patterns that have been going on in their life that they just don't want to happen anymore. And then you get into resolving grief from your past or whatever childhood um, trauma or issues you might have been through. And just to know that other people aren't living this, you know, fake reality that is put in our face by media, social media, advertisements, since the beginning of time, advertisements are telling us we need to be different, we need to look different, we need to have this thing in order to feel good about ourselves. So in Max's interaccess training and all of his workshops, he really teaches people how to 
be present with what their emotions are to heal parts of themselves. Yeah. And he talks a lot about that in this interview that Christy did. She recently went over to Italy and did another kind of in-depth training, right? Or a A workshop, a Mm -hmm. retreat with Max and all these other people and had the opportunity to interview him. And so that's really exciting. And then this November, he's going to be coming to Pittsburgh to do a training through schoolhouse yoga. Correct. But then he's also going to do a little thing. He's going to do some lectures at the village too. So lots of different opportunities. So you had mentioned when I first met Max, it was during a workshop and I just, you know, experienced meditation with him. And then he's in the States now mm-hmm. for the summer, well, I think most of the summer, and then he'll be back again come November when he's here in Pittsburgh and surrounding areas. So wherever you're listening, check his website to see if there's something by you because he does different things. He does workshops, he does teacher trainings, he does lectures, he does just breath work things. So. Well, I think what's different, like we're talking inner access, it is in a way connected to yoga he pulls from yoga but it's Mm -hmm. not just a strict yoga practice and so if there are people that are interested I think in dabbling maybe or getting into something and maybe yoga isn't for you we talk about breath work a lot in the podcast and I know Christy uses interaxis breath work with her clients I use breath work myself I don't use specific interaxis but I use breath work with my clients and I use it myself we use Mm -hmm. it ourselves we have our own practice and it's really great because it really just focuses on connecting breath with movement and how helpful that is Mm -hmm. in being restorative to your body, working out difficult emotions, things like that, and just allowing yourself to be really fully present in your body, which is a great thing. So if this is something that you're interested in, I would absolutely encourage you to look it up and see if you can access it. Yeah. um, Like I said, you can access it through Max Strom's website or... He now has an app, which I think is hilarious because he has two books, uh, Life Worth Breathing, which so many people have said, you know, this was life transforming for me. This is the reason that like I came to this end up the retreat that I was on. People were there. They gave up their whole lives for a week to really, you know, unplug from everything. We didn't have access to Internet to really, you know, connect with that sort of work. And it's so important to do this in your life. Taking a whole week. Yes, not ideal for everybody but maybe not possible right but you can take a half an hour you can take a weekend with your girlfriends Mm -hmm. or you know what I mean there's plenty of different ways that you you don't need to go to Italy to do it you could maybe go to a cabin in the woods (laughs) although Italy was Italy is gorgeous it was okay yeah um yeah but and the food was okay too but um and then the second book is so his two books are um a life worth breathing and there is no app for happiness which is great because now max has an app that's hilarious so it's very ironic and um his app is called strategic breathing and i use it in session with clients too it's wonderful it's max's voice and he walks through the four seven eight breath he walks through seated posture breathing standing postures so Again, if you're just looking to see like, hey, what is this work kind of, you can check that out. He has an online course too. And I think once you purchase that, you get access to it. Oh, nice. You own it. So that work is there. And also on YouTube is a free InterAccess 30, which we talk about in the podcast. So lots of different ways. It's very accessible. And for all ages, for all abilities, Mm -hmm. it's really a good way to say, this is a way I'm going to take care of my body and learn to quiet my mind. Yeah, so we Mm -hmm. hope you enjoy the interview. And this is also in celebration of our one year doing the podcast. 
Happy one year. Yeah, it's cheers. our one year anniversary. Cheers to, to one year. And who knows where the next year is going to take us. So we're happy to have Max on for our one year anniversary. And we look forward to what the year has to bring us. I'm very excited here in Italy to be joined by my teacher and mentor and most importantly, my friend, Max Strom. Hello, Max. Hello. And thank you for coming on to the podcast. I think that there's a lot of information that we can share with people to help them develop a better sense of themselves, a better sense of community, and I'm happy that you're here to share your insight with us. I'm really happy to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Speaking of community, I find it very interesting, I don't know if you know this, Max, that when you host a retreat or a workshop that there's chatter amongst the people early on about how they came to find and know you. And I think that it's very interesting to me to hear just how many people have found you, they might say accidentally, or they might have read one of your books, especially the Breathe to Heal book, I feel is very transformative for people. Yeah, the learn. Life Worth Breathing book. The Life Worth Breathing, And the Breathe to Heal uh, TED Talk has brought in a lot of people. My story, did I ever share with you how I came to find you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I went to the Wonderlust Festival in Colorado a few years back. And (laughs) I didn't know anybody that was going to be. And here there's all these world-renowned people and I didn't know anybody. I just knew that I was early on going through my divorce and I wanted to kind of get away and just immerse myself in some different yoga practices and I had never taken a meditation class before and the class that Max was teaching was a meditation and for the first time we did a lot of breath work and then you did a guided visualization at the end of that and that one in particular really struck a chord for me because you talked about getting into your heart and allowing not yourself but somebody that you really trust in to take the armor off of your heart Mm. And another thing that struck me about that was the the language that you used was just to simply invite the possibility of forgiveness. Can you talk a little bit about not only the importance of having somebody that you love and trust take that armor off rather than you yourself, and also why you recommend people inviting the possibility rather than saying, and now you should forgive this person. Mm, Okay. So first of all, I think that everybody has a sense of protection around the chest. And it's so normal that we don't even realize it until it's pointed out. It's kind of it's it's similar to where when you maybe you were a kid, and your mother or father says stand up straight, and you stand up straight, and you didn't realize you weren't standing up straight. I don't know if that's the greatest analogy, but you you, you get a sense of what I mean. Others are aware of it, you're not. So we tend to protect ourselves, and I think emotions are quite localized in the body. That's why we refer to the heart as the place where we feel love. And we don't need the blood pump, but there's some sort of sense of feeling in the chest. And that's where we get terms like stabbed in the back or heartbreaking or heart is going to explode with, with joy and love. So we, at a very early age, we find ourselves quite vulnerable when we go into societies, especially at around six years old, when you start confronting um bullying for the first time and we start to build this what I call armor around the the chest to protect ourselves that armor includes facial expressions where we try to look tough so people leave us alone and shoulders forward shoulders up by the ears arms crossed a lot but just a general sense that we have this armor and so after breathing exercises for 
an hour or more, it really starts to, you could say, crack this armor. And the only way I can really explain this so that it makes sense is, instead of imagining the armor being made of steel, imagine it's made of ice. And the ice is frozen emotion from the past. So unresolved emotions from the past, past events, past crises, past traumas. And once you start breathing, and I like to use the analogy that the, the warm breath starts to melt the ice. Mm. Um, so these crises layer themselves on top of one another. Yeah, like a club sandwich. Mm. A crisis club and, and sandwich. And that's why I'm wondering, is our work ever done? <laughs> because in a sense, you might say, oh, I'm coming to sort of resolve, for instance, my divorce. But then there might be something the next time that I come through. and That's right. Mm-hmm. So for example... I had to resolve my divorce five years ago. So I went through a period of crisis and heavy grief. And that was new. I didn't have that before. But unlike most people, I didn't have six other crises buried in my body as well that then this would go on top of. Mm -hmm. And then it would be a real crisis. Instead, because of the clearing work I've done, let's, let's call it clearing or disarmoring and ventilating the emotions out of my body, I dealt mostly just with the divorce and not my childhood also so much, so much. But I think your listeners can relate to this if they think of it this way. If you go through a breakup and you start feeling intense grief over the breakup, you also will start remembering other people that you were involved with and any kind of grief you still have remaining for them. If you lose someone to death, someone dies that's close to you, you start remembering other people that died especially if you've done none of this work and you haven't been through therapy. It's just a big club sandwich in there. And so, (laughs) I don't know know if food is the best analogy. I think it's the perfect analogy. (laughs) But I think Americans especially can relate to this because they're served everywhere. So the idea is get rid of the club sandwich Mm -hmm. and then you can deal with crises one at a time. Okay, and so it's really like a process. It's not a one and done no, sort of no, it's a process. It, it takes a while, I think, to to ventilate the club sandwich. And then as each event happens in our life, you know, the next relationship that you lose, the next death, the next, you know, we also have crises where we have a health scare or something like that, you know, then you can deal with them one at a time and they won't necessarily have the, a devastating impact as they would. So, for example, if you go through a divorce and you haven't reconciled any of your past relationships are just all stuffed down in you it's really bad Mm. and that's why i think people also turn to addictions addictive behaviors uh you know like drowning themselves in alcohol for the next few years after the divorce as an example i know that you talk about addiction also in terms of perfectionism so it might not be that somebody turns to a substance but they throw themselves into their work and they might not even recognize that as being an unhealthy coping mechanism yeah, I don't remember who said it to me once, but someone said uh, working extremely long hours is socially the the most socially accepted form of addiction. And I thought that was very insightful. And perfectionism can be a result of coming from a chaotic background where as a child and or teenager you feel out of control. One, one or both parents create uh, chaotic circumstances and we start early on to try to create order and safety Mm -hmm. 
And then once we become adults, then it really becomes a priority. We don't even realize we're doing that. It's interesting to me because children make sense of their environment and their brains aren't developed enough in order to really make sense of what's going on. So they kind of make their own assumptions mm -hmm. along the way. That's right. In our teacher training, you did a visualization, pretty powerful with your visualizations, about having one of your parents arrive home and noticing what the feeling is evoked in you. Mm -hmm. And then what a difference it would be if that parent learned to deal with their own grief or their own anger. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how anger affects other people in our lives when it's, you know, you're, you're projecting that yeah, anger that's onto? Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So when I talk to adults about the idea of why it's important to clear these emotions, I think people only partially get it. But then as soon as I remind people what it's like to be a child and have a chaotic parent who frightened you, then they get it. Yeah. Like, remember that? Remember living in a house like that? Well, now we're the adults. And if you don't want to have to just save money, not only for college, but for your child's therapy, then you might want to look at reconciling with your past so you don't have a negative uh, crisis type of impact on mm -hmm. your child. Do you think that most, in your opinion, that most people don't stop to consider their own inner child? Yes, I think the, the idea is foreign to many. They've never even heard of the idea or they've heard so little about it. They don't understand it. Therefore, aren't interested. To me, the time to deal with the inner child is after a long breathing session where I feel we have much more access to our emotions and memory than before. Why is that? What does breath work do to open the space that allows your emotions to come out? I don't know the answer to that. And as far as I know, I've never heard an answer to that. But you know it happens. Absolutely. You see it. <laughs> absolutely. There's, there's a lot of things we know are very real and powerful that we don't understand yet. Uh, the example I like to give is neuroscientists can tell you what part of the brain fires when you dream, mm -hmm. but they don't know why we have to dream and well, why we will go insane if we don't dream. There are many still unanswered questions, but we know for a fact that it is so. We, for example, we know for a fact that a baby starts crying when it's born, but a neuroscientist can't tell you why they do that or why even as an adult, if we start to cry, uh, well, let me back up as an adult, if you start to feel grief why your lungs and diaphragm start to quaver and spasm. And we do what's known as sobbing. And that comes right from birth. That's inherent behavior. And there's no explanation for that. <laughs> I didn't answer a previous question. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready for it. All right. You asked me a question. Because now I have another question. Good. So I'm going to hold on to that one. <laughs> so now this answer is uh, referencing to why have someone else lift the armor off your chest. Oh, mm -hmm. And, oh, why suggest it? Why not say to do it? Mm -hmm. To forgive? Okay, so first, why suggest that we forgive rather than just say, think of someone that hurt you and forgive them? Because a lot of people aren't ready to forgive. And when you're saying something like this to the general public, let's say you have a class of 50 people, you have a variety of crises, a lot, variety of traumas, a variety of um, responses to those traumas. So if I'll create an example, if a woman is sitting there and six months ago she was gang raped and you say, why don't you think of the worst thing that ever happened to you and forgive those people? Mm -hmm. She might not be anywhere near ready to forgive those people at all. And then she just gets furious with me. <laughs> 
<laughs> and walks out of the room. And counterproductive. Like, counterproductive. <laughs> suboptimal. Yes, suboptimal. So, uh, you know, that's an extreme example, but I, I think it's clear. When I suggest that people consider the possibility of forgiving, um, it's not so invasive. And I also try to remember to say, don't pick the greatest wound of your life when we do this exercise. Pick a smaller one, a more of a manageable one, and then practice, just like you practice anything else. Practice forgiving. And the, how does the forgiveness of yourself tie into that? Okay. So I'm going to go back to your previous question of why have someone else pick up the armor oh, mm -hmm. off your chest? And it's, the reason is because it's like someone else is giving us permission. Mm. Because I say, imagine the person you trust most in the world. So your most trusted friend or relative or significant other is looking at you and can see that this armor is inhibiting your level of intimacy that you have in your life, your experience of intimacy and vulnerability. And so they are very carefully, not judgmentally, just like they're taking a bandage off of you that's been on a long time. They lift this off of you. So the sense of someone else doing that for your own good, but with love and not judgment, I think is very powerful. More so than if I said, you take the armor off your chest. Mm -hmm. Even saying it, it sounds totally different. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we need the permission, some of us do anyway. Now, next question. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the next question is, I think that oftentimes when people are looking at forgiving something that has happened to them caused by another person they discount their role in that and their need to forgive themselves yes i like to answer that in story form please with, with regards to my own personal experience because i've been teaching the forgiveness workshop for a number of years and uh, i still teach it but you know it still worked for me as well so I know a lot of techniques, but there was this one friend who I, I would say at one point was one of my closest friends. And uh, a number of years ago, I don't know how many, like, uh, I'd say 10 or more years ago, 15 years ago, I realized that he was a treacherous friend. Uh, and I don't mean just one event, but multiple. And then when I talked to other people who knew him and shared some of my experiences, I found out this was a pattern. And so this was not someone that I should keep in my life, mm -hmm. especially close. So I severed the friendship and I couldn't really forgive him. I would do the forgiveness exercises that I prescribe and it would work, but then later it would come back again, you know, like a boomerang, mm -hmm. you know, it would sail off into the horizon. Uh, that's done. And then it would come back and hit me in the face. <laughs> and I couldn't quite figure out why that was. But then I was talking to a mutual friend one day that, that I hadn't seen in a long time. And she brought up his name and she saw my the expression of my face change. <laughs> the boomerang hits. The boomerang hits. And yeah, that was the boomerang hitting me in the face. And she said, oh, you look like you're still angry at him. I said, well, I, I, I'd like to say I'm not, that I've completely forgiven him, but I'm having trouble. And I'm not sure why. And she said, I think I know why. And I said, really? <laughs> she said, yes. I, I was surprised because we're not that close, and I was surprised she would have that deep of an insight, mm -hmm. but she did. And the insight she had was, she says, Max, you're a really good judge of character. I, I know how you observe everybody, and you can see things that other people don't see. So I think you're angry with yourself for allowing him to get so close to you and not seeing this side of him 
until it caused harm. So you're angry with yourself for allowing him to become so close to you and trusting an untrustworthy person. So mm -hmm. And it hit me like a boomerang in the face. It, <laughs> it really felt like that's exactly, I didn't even question it. It was like, yes, that, that's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was one of those epiphanies, you know. And, and then so, we wonder why we're so reluctant to be vulnerable in relationships. Yes, that's right. So I worked on forgiving myself. And once I did that, I don't really think about him anymore. Mm. It was the key to letting go of him. I had to forgive myself first before I could forgive him. Mm. Do you remember what the forgiveness was? Was it that you were just being human and allowing somebody that close? Well, I wouldn't get my, let myself off the hook quite that much to say <laughs> I'm only human. I would say in this case, it was from childhood. Mm -hmm. It was a childhood blind spot where, as you know, uh, more than anyone, if something is normal for us in childhood, it becomes normal for us in adulthood. And we don't recognize certain behaviors uh, until, they're, until we get hit in the face with them. Mm -hmm. Just like the boomerang. Just like the boomerang. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your childhood as a man in the U.S. society? How do you feel that has impacted the way that you view the world or the lessons that you were taught about what it means to be a man? Because it's you're doing a lot of work with men and workshops specifically for men. What do you feel is important to have the listeners know about? I know you bring up anger a lot or vulnerability in relationships? Well, first of all, my upbringing was, was mixed, but I think the mixed upbringing had a big impact on me. In other words, I had a German father who was an immigrant. He wasn't someone who just had German ancestors. He, he, I was born, I think, three years after he immigrated to the United States. So he was a German. And um, he had just come from occupied Germany post-war. So his, his whole way of living was German. My mother, American and in particular Southern, which is different, mm -hmm. you know, than Northern or Western. And so there was a lot of emphasis on manners, polite, being polite, being considerate to other people. Even be, I noticed one of the chief messages I got from them that my friends did get was to take care of things. You know, there was this real emphasis on, you know, when you, you don't drop your bicycle on the ground and run, you, you put the kickstand down and you, you set it aside, you take care of your bicycle, you know, but a lot of that came from people who didn't have any money and had seen mm -hmm. a lot of hardship and starvation and so on. And my mother was in the South in the, the Depression. But also, I, I, I'm not sure where I got it. I think I got it from my mother. I got this great, there's this encoding in me to protect women and to be kind to women and respectful to them. And I think it came from her. I, I don't remember it that clearly, but I, I'm pretty sure. And she used to tell me stories about how things were in the United States between men and women when she was, let's say, in her early 20s. So her, she was born in 23, so in the 40s, 1940s, just for perspective. Mm -hmm. So during wartime. So she gave an example of how if there was a, let's say, a restaurant that also had a bar, so people are also drinking, not just eating. And if, let's say, a group of men started getting loud, um, that was frowned upon, first of all. And then secondly, if you started hearing four-letter words coming from their conversation, and a lot of those four-letter words now aren't even considered swear words anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like heck <laughs> or hell. Crap. Yeah, hell, mm -hmm. crap, damn. These were mm -hmm. really bad words. And we just laugh at them now. You know, nobody even says them anymore. Other men, especially soldiers, 
because they were young and strong, would get up, walk over to the table, and very quietly say, you have to keep your voices down. There are women here, ladies here. That was a, that's the protect women, mm -hmm. you know. And if the men were belligerent in response, they would be invited to step outside and settle it. And this was not uncommon, she said. This was the way things were. And there were a lot of fights. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, if a woman, let's say, was on a date and went through a, a borderline date rape situation, I'm saying borderline now because it would be worse if it was actual, they'd have to deal with her brothers or uncles or father. There would be immediate repercussions, not by calling the sheriff or the police. You, you, you'd have people coming after you. And there was an understanding about that, more or less. Mm -hmm. and not, unfortunately, not all girls have brothers or <laughs> men looking out for them. But I, 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 we're generalizing now, profiling mm -hmm. completely. Right. <laughs> but, um, but there was a sense of somebody had your back. Somebody had your back. Men had your back. Mm -hmm. that, that other men, that a woman could even run to an, a stranger on the street and say, there's a man that's bothering me, and he would go do something about it. And that was normal behavior. And now I think our American culture has become so casual and in some cases so vulgar and there are no rules and nothing means anything that no one knows how to behave. And it's funny now that everybody in the media is complaining about behavior when there are no rules. Like, how can you have no rules and complain? Mm -hmm. Like, let's, why don't, maybe we need to change the rules. I'm not against that. But we, we need some, let's not use the rules, let's say guidelines. And, um, and it has to be coherent and kind, these guidelines. And, and so I think um, one of the things I tell men in my workshops is that I believe we should go back to an idea that we protect women from ourselves and from other men. And that includes from our own anger. And I, I've been saying that a lot to men and women, that I think a really good vow to take with your significant other is to vow to protect them from our own anger. Because I think that that could change. That could be world changing. Mm. We talk. We think about changing the world politically, and I think there's some substance to that. But I think most change has to happen in the house. Mm -hmm. The word that you used was casual, and that just sent off all kinds of bells for me. Because in working with women and men, it just seems that the dating has become so casual, mm -hmm. and that people are so in and out and confused about relationships that they may be. Women especially, I think, accept behavior that they might think otherwise is not okay just because it's the norm now. Right. Whatever is normal, especially with young people, they want so bad not to be shunned and to be cool. Mm -hmm. Whatever is normal is uh, what people do. How do you think that technology has influenced that? Radically. I think, uh, I think it would be a really good idea to, to keep young people off social media altogether. Mm -hmm. And after we're done with that, get all the adults on social media as well. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about your thoughts on social media? Well, I've called it anti-social media for about 10 years. And I, I, no, I noticed this is catching on now. <laughs> I don't think they got it from me. I think it's an obvious... Well, the illusion of connection. Yeah, it's an illusion mm -hmm. of connection. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I think social media has its place like a knife has its place. Like, uh, well, like alcohol has its place. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one thing to have 
some wine sometimes or a beer or, or a hard drink sometimes. It's another thing to be a fall down drunk, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it's the same, I think, with social media. It's, to a certain extent, I think it can add to one's life. But Especially in connections when you're all over the world with people that yes. you know. It, it's a wonderful tool for yeah. that. Yes, but if you find you can't go six hours without going to social media or you start getting the shakes, mm-hmm. that could be a problem. Keeping the fire contained to the fireplace and not on the curtains. Very nicely said. <laughs> and of course, we like analogies. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's easier to communicate through social media. Therefore, we choose to do that rather than be vulnerable with people in our presence. Mm. And if we would help each other learn to be vulnerable, which means more intimate, which means closer, stronger connections. But that's terrifying. It's people terrifying. get hurt that way. That's right. Life is hard. Mm-hmm. So we're either going to get hurt by being vulnerable mm-hmm. or we're going to die of loneliness. And uh, so people don't understand why they're on social media all the time and are desperately lonely. But we know now from studies that the millennial generation are the loneliest generation alive right now. I'm really happy that you brought that up because somebody actually recently asked me about that. We have some of the helicopter parents maybe that don't want their children to experience failure. They don't want them to be hurt and how that's damaging to a person because Mm -hmm. our failures are what teach us those lessons and how, uh, how can you survive in a world when you're constantly protected from being disappointed? That's right. I mean, think about the military, for example, if in the military, you're trained in mock combat scenarios. So for example, they'll have you crawl on your belly under wire. You all see this on TV with your weapon while they shoot bullets over your head, real bullets. Um, so that once you get into war, you have at least a little bit of an idea of what you're about to face. Kids, you know, once they're on their adults and they're on their own, they're going to face adversity. And if you never allow them to face adversity, you're throwing lambs to the wolves, basically. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're going to have anxiety. So I believe that control diversities, you know, to a certain extent, is key. And that's, sports provides that. Sports also provides a sense of team, which is really important and helps prevent bullying. A lot of coaches say, though, that the discipline has been taken away from them, that they're no longer allowed to, and not physically so much uh, discipline, but the parents get angry if their child isn't playing or, you know, they're not included. And again, I believe that it comes to what you talked about with community. Can we trust our neighbors to look after our families? I lived in a, in a community where I didn't know my next door neighbor for two years. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the, the sense of isolation is really terrifying because in your book, um, there is uh, no app for happiness. You talk about in the 1950s when air conditioning and television were simultaneously presented. Mm -hmm. That was the start of this, you know, I'm going to keep to myself and I'm going to be entertained by these devices rather than people. Yeah. Before air conditioning in the summer, you were forced to go outside, sit on your porch. Kids played in the street. You were forced to interact. You were forced to interact. Air conditioning allowed you to go inside and stop interacting with your neighbors. Television we stop interacting with each other. Computer, now we go into different rooms and get online. So more and more uh, technology is both benefiting us and demolishing us. I believe also as I'm an educator too, well in a former life I was an educator, but teaching these skills to children is actually 
you know, calming to them. They want that sense of structure, learning how to communicate and empathize with other people and learning how to deal with our own emotions is not something that's taught in schools or really even in families now. When you talk about the, the adults that come into workshops or different, different, um, educational avenues to learn these skills for themselves are the children getting it most likely not no the helicopter parenting thing has to go it's obviously a a tremendous failure when i was let's say in high school there were a few kids that had anxiety i mean i remember them they were you know we would call them nervous types Mm -hmm. you know high warriors warriors or Mm -hmm. high strong or whatever There, there were a few and that generally i think came from their home life not so much school life in some cases, the bullying was part of it. But now, it's estimated 50% of kids have anxiety in the U.S. All right. So these kids don't have jobs. They don't have... Uh, wars to they fight. They don't have wars <laughs> to fight. They don't have uh, the economy to... They're not in college yet. Uh, so the only thing that's really changed is parenting and some school environment, too, because a lot of the school environment has changed... Well, and social media, too. And, and social media. Although, um, now let's talk about just eight-year-olds. They're not so much on social media. Mm-hmm. I was thinking the bullying and the cyber bullying. Yeah, the yeah. cyber bullying is rough because it's easy. They can't turn it off. <laughs> yeah, they can't turn it off. Yeah. But, but a lot of that's parenting because, for example, there is a phone and there's a phone app called Monkey. Did I tell you about that? I believe so, it's, yeah. It's spelled M-O-N-Q-I. And it's for kids. And... So imagine giving your kid a phone where they can't go online. They can't go on social media. They can send texts. They can call. That's it. And you can even control who they can call and send texts to. So if there's been a problem kid in their life, you can just eliminate that. They Mm. cannot communicate. They can still call the police. They can still call your neighbors in case there's an emergency, whatever. Because that's what parents say. I want to get in touch with them. Yes. <laughs> and there's a GPS in it, so you can actually know where they are, or at least where their phone is, and <laughs> which can come in handy <laughs> for little ones or teenagers, because mm-hmm. they don't always tell you the truth. Okay, so this phone exists, but people don't buy it. Uh, this is, a, to me, um, incredible that um, an 11-year-old is handed a smartphone, because, I mean... As a therapist, you know, we have an incredibly powerful, sad problem of early addiction to pornography. So you're giving an 11-year-old, let's say boy, a smartphone. You're basically saying, here's access to all the world's pornography. Now, don't use it. And then you walk away. (laughs) And that's just crazy. Testosterone is going to make you look, for sure. Right. No longer... Stashing the magazine under the mattress. Oh, or have them taken away from you. <laughs> right? Well, and then it sets up all these expectations about relationships and, you know, a disconnect, I think, for sure as well. That's exactly right. In your yoga classes, I know that you often give realistic and comical commentary throughout your classes, which is always very well appreciated, at least Thank by you. me. But you say that a lot of these things are simple but not easy mm-hmm. so when you're talking about that it sounds much to be the same these things are simple solutions but they're not easy to implement that's exactly right for example for some reason in, in the united states physical education has been 
um, diminished or even removed from schools. And then they're wondering why kids are hyperactive and then they drug them for this. It, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that, to connect those dots as to why this is ter a terrible decision. And how could it have even happened? Right. But it has. Or that even high schoolers need recess time mm -hmm. or time to teach. Can you talk a little bit about, even as adults, teaching people to be less judgmental on the mat because they're constantly pushing themselves to this these perfectionist ideals that are most of the time unattainable. The first thing I tell perfectionists is, who are you comparing yourself to? Do you know anybody that's perfect? That always gets a look. Because <laughs> I haven't met any. <laughs> right? We can drive ourselves into a, a chronic anxiety by thinking that we need to have control of our environment and everything and that the world is going to collapse if we don't have control. It's like there's this real fear that everything's going to go terribly wrong mm -hmm. if we don't have control. Or that everybody else has it under control and I don't. That's right. I mean, because look at social media. That's their right. vacations are perfect. Their children are perfect. Yes. Everything is... They're running down the beach all wearing white, holding <laughs> billowing fabric over their head. Yes. While their children bounce around, they're also wearing white unstained clothing. And then a Labrador or Golden Retriever are also um, chasing behind you. I've seen so many commercials like that. <laughs> they're usually pharmaceuticals. Right. And, and they show these images as they're telling you the side effects of the pharmaceuticals with ukulele music playing in the background. I think that that's usually when you call it the inner terrorist. Yeah. Can you talk briefly about the inner terrorist and where that shows up? Sure. The inner terrorist, I know him well. He's the guy that sabotages and blows up all the best parts of my life or myself. So I make a good decision and he says, yeah, I'll handle that for you. And uh, <laughs> sabotages it. And any decision that, that's healthy, any decision that is good, so that, um, that builds self-esteem, he will try to destroy that. Because that's our own sense of unworthiness. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do, my theory, I should say my hypothesis, is that it comes from neglect. And you know, if a child is neglected enough, as you know, that we start to believe that we don't have value, and then that voice stays with us. It tells you that whatever you do is going to fail, you're not going to succeed. And by the way, why would, why would you, of all people, even try? How could you possibly have thought this was going to work? You know, it's those sorts of voices in our head. Or things start to go, well, you don't deserve this. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is not going to end well. You might as well stop it. That's right. You met this wonderful person. You should probably break up with them because before they leave you, mm -hmm. that, that's Prote a good one. And again, protecting yourself, keeping people at a distance so mm -hmm. that... You don't have to feel that hurt. That's but right. you said loneliness is the result of not putting yourself out there. That's right. I'd like to talk a little bit about yoga and what you've noticed over the years, what our culture has, how yoga has changed in our culture. I know in America, especially, we've seemed to have gone to more of a an exercise practice than a philosophy-based practice. So if you could speak a little bit to the type of yoga you do and how it might be different. Well, I think in 1989, the amount of people doing yoga in the United States was something like 0.001% uh, of the population. <laughs> so it was really a fringe thing up until the early 90s. And 
I started catching on in Los Angeles. And then once that happened, movie stars and rock stars started practicing it, and models started coming. And then when people heard that, that you could go and practice yoga and be right next to people you watch on TV, it exponentially grew. And you were in California at the time. Yes, I was in California. I was there at that time, and I started teaching at that time in Los Angeles. And I don't like it when people are overly critical about yoga as not being spiritual, and that real yoga is spiritual. Because even the spiritual kind of yoga is really a hybrid of what came from India. I also don't care for the attitude that if it doesn't come from India, it's not real yoga. Because if you go to India, what you'll find is there hasn't been a great interest in yoga in some time. They've only caught on to yoga again more recently because of the same reason. Their Bollywood stars started doing um, American-style yoga. And people started copying What them. is American-style yoga? Well, whatever we call like, like vinyasa flow okay. type of yoga now. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what we, would, what we would guess as real yoga. You know, I know a teacher who teaches in New Delhi who says that the, all of her Indian students prefer American-style yoga than to the Indian-style yoga, partly because they can do it because they're also tight and have stress and so on. They're not asked to do these insane postures, uh, act, what's the word, contortionist-type postures. Yoga is splitting up into various factions. There's a, there's a type of yoga that is really based in medicine. There's one that's based in scholarly uh, academic papers on yoga and yoga philosophy. There's all kinds of fitness gym-type yoga where it's mainly just for exercise. And I think there's a place for all of them. We have to remember that the majority of people aren't interested in in self-transformation. Never have been throughout history. And I think that I said philosophical thinking, connecting with oneself. Mm -hmm. And in your classes, I know that you speak to people directly about answering your inner critic, about Mm -hmm. using the postures as a way to transform how you talk to yourself. Yeah, to me, uh, I like... And I've always liked yoga as a self-transformational practice. And so I try to teach it that way, with a relaxed face. (laughs) And uh, I'm just saying that because it was pointed out to me that my face wasn't relaxed recently. (laughs) Present company not excluded. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. And I want to work with people who want that. If somebody doesn't want that, I don't mind. Yeah. And often the timing is different in our lives. Uh, What I mean by that is just because someone isn't interested in personal transformation today doesn't mean they won't be five years from now or ten years from now. So quite often people will come around later and Mm -hmm. want something deeper or more intimate. So it's been changing a lot. It will continue to change and I've changed and that's as you know I I don't know. How would you describe my classes to someone? How are they different than typical American vinyasa flow classes? I find when you say simple, not easy, is the way to describe your class. It's very, uh, you're very direct in your directions. There's not a lot of extra talk. There's not sort of like this melancholy of, uh, I'm getting lost in the teacher's sing-songy voice. It's very direct. Mm -hmm. And using the breath work, especially for me, is a way to power give power to your muscles in a way that I don't 
experience in any other classes. So where we might do a lot of different lunges, a few down dogs, we're not doing a flow type, but I find that I'm physically more exhausted after those classes in a good way. So I feel that maybe somebody else might come and say, oh, that's a, a simple practice. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is, but it isn't. Well, sim- simple, is, uh, simple can be profound. I mean, if you think about runners, you know, running is pretty simple. But running 50 miles isn't simple. <laughs> and so <laughs> you just right? that distance. Uh, well, so. how did you get introduced to yoga? Uh, I, like, I sort of know the story, but I think yeah. that it's relevant. Like a lot of men, I got dragged to yoga by a, a new girlfriend because it has to be a new girlfriend, someone you're still <laughs> trying to impress, someone you're still trying to impress. And when they say things like, I have a surprise for you on your birthday, and you say, what? And she says, I'm taking you to your first yoga class. That you smile and you say, great. <laughs> and in your head, you're saying. Your, you're saying, oh, no. <laughs> I wonder if I can get out of this. So that well, you've said before that you don't have the typical, I hate saying typical yoga body, but like that a teacher might say, oh, you might be a challenge in a class. Yeah, I, I played for, for, this is going to be listened to, I guess, primarily by Americans, defensive tackle in football. So I'm 6'6", six, six, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, a scrawny little contortionist. I'm a, I'm a big person, tall person. When I started yoga, I was into lifting weights and running along the beach. Not long distances. I've never been a good long distance runner, but you know, three miles or something like that regularly, and a lot of weightlifting. So I was very, very tight, and uh, yoga was very challenging to me. And I really hated my first class, and knew that I was just going to do this for her one time. <laughs> and it was your birthday. And it was my birthday, <laughs> my thirty-fifth birthday, and uh, I felt so good later, and I slept so well. I knew that that I had to go back. But I wanted to go back to a, a, a beginner's class because you took me to an intermediate class, thinking that if I wasn't heavily challenged, I wouldn't like it, which I think she was wrong in this case, but, yeah. but it's okay. And so I kept yoga and not the girlfriend. <laughs> she did not last the yoga last. She did not. She didn't last <laughs> six months, but the yoga has lasted now, what, 25, six years, I don't know. And how did you develop inner access? When I started teaching, there was no such thing as vinyasa flow. And there was mm-hmm. three or four of us that basically had the same idea at the same time, which was to take uh, Ashtanga yoga and modify it. So we were taking Ashtanga, which is quite flowy, and modifying it so that it was, in my case, safer, because I thought it was quite dangerous. But it was primarily dangerous because of three or four postures, that if you weren't naturally flexible, you were going to damage your knees or damage your back. That was a predictable outcome. So I modified it in that way. And that's what I started teaching. When I started teaching, I taught primary series Ashtanga with about four postures, switched out with safer postures. And then I would give many workshops each class. And I used to play music. And there was only three of us that played music in the whole school. And we were considered heretics for that, by the way. The owners hated it. But they let us do it because we had the biggest classes. And once people saw these three innovators play music, teach this new weird flowing thing, that's what they decided to do as well. And so very quickly people started imitating what we were doing and it caught on quite quickly. But after I was teaching for, let's say, 
two, three years, I started modifying based on what I was seeing in the room. So for example, I really wanted to teach breath work, but found teaching breath work from a seated position, the way my teachers had done it, was not working that well. And so I incorporated my um, Qigong background, Chinese yoga, where you do standing breathing exercises. And that was much more successful immediately. So I knew I was on to something. So I'm a bit of an innovator by nature. So things that didn't work that well, I tried to improve over time. So in summary, my inner axis practice is basically uh, an amalgamation of various forms of Hatha yoga, of Qigong, of movement therapy, and then a lot of things I learned along the way uh, and have practiced for years. And sometimes people don't understand that. They say, well, how do you just learn things as you go? But I, I ask, well, would you rather have brain surgery by somebody who just got out of school or who has done brain surgery 2,500 times? Mm -hmm. Because the person who's done it 2,500 times learns some things mm -hmm. that you can't even teach in college. It, and so the experiential it, pieces, the experiential really piece, mm -hmm. plus trial and error, you mm -hmm. know, where you say, for example, you know, my teachers, let's say, said, teach this posture like this. But then a lot of people pull their muscle in their back. Mm. But my teachers taught me to do it that mm -hmm. way very clearly. So I modify it. Now they don't hurt their back anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'll stick by that. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a good thing, not getting hurt. Yes. When you said that, I know that before you have mentioned when you're doing vinyasa flows, the chaturanga of what a lot of classes call really requires a lot more upper body strength than most people that are attempting to do it. And I think that when I brought that to people's attention, they've said, oh, well, that's why. And I feel like such a failure when everybody mm -hmm. else is pushing themselves or even hurting themselves in, in a practice like that. Yeah. By the time it was around 2002, 2001, I really had dropped vinyasa flow and I had modified it so much, it didn't look like vinyasa flow much anymore. And as you said, one of the one of the many chief problems with it is the old chaturanga, which is one of the few postures that we still use Sanskrit for. You know, plank, English, <laughs> chaturanga, Sanskrit. Up dog, English, chaturanga, Sanskrit. It doesn't make any sense to teach mm -hmm. like that. Most people don't have the upper body strength to do that safely. You can do it, but you'll end up damaging your wrists, elbows, or shoulders. And so, for example, I tell my students that if you can't do 20 push-ups, you shouldn't do chaturanga. Because mm. you don't have the strength for it, and you're going to damage your joints. And that's very eye-opening, for sure. Eye-opening and surprising, because there are so many teacher trainings that don't tell you that. Mm -hmm. When I teach inner access yoga for people who are used to doing a flow class or whatever, I always use your advice in introducing this of uh, breath work and saying, now you should try this. And do you remember what you say about that? You've done a million things for, for less reasons. Oh, you, you've done, if you, if you feel silly doing this, yeah. mm -hmm. think about all the silly things you've done that really weren't good for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually good for you. So give it a try and, See if it works. And that you can take this the breathwork practice anywhere. You could be in your car. You could be practicing yeah. in a bathroom stall if you're overwhelmed at work. That's really a good a good place to start for anybody listening that might feel like they don't have the time to practice or they don't know where to begin. And Max has a wonderful um, Interaccess 30 on YouTube that you can follow along with even in 
office clothes, some of the people. That's right. Interacts is 30. 30 stands for 30 minutes. Yeah. I'd like to end with a quote, if you will. A Max quote, actually, that makes me think about you. So you had said this a few times. Never put out a campfire with your face. <laughs> and relax your face for the rest of your life. <laughs> any, other, any other sage advice from that? <laughs> I just wanted to see your faces when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Quote from Max is, Trust comes with consistency, and the way that you treat people is how you will be remembered. And I think that you really live this quote, and I Thank wanted you. to ask you, how do you, as a person, maintain these virtues in your life? Thank you. I, uh, I think I maintain them most of the time, not all of the time, but thank you through effort and, and by the belief that, that it's true. And it, it's, it's like an algorithm, really, because if you look at how you train an animal, the animal will trust you once you show consistent behavior. Uh, if you train an animal with consistent behavior, that animal will trust you and will be loyal to you. If you train a child, teach a child with consistent behavior, they're more likely to know good healthy boundaries and not have anxiety and a boundaryless world creates anxiety or an inconsistent world where for example you might have parents who are great most of the time and then suddenly for no apparent reason their behavior changes and they're really difficult to, mm -hmm. to say the least so to say what you mean and to follow through with those would mm -hmm. be excellent it, ways it of creates a sense of safety trust respect all of it comes from consistent behavior so I try <laughs> you do quite well thank you thanks for being here thank you for listening to conversations to connect with Gretchen and Christy if you like our show want more information and want to connect with us go to our website at www.conversationstoconnect.com and follow us on Instagram we hope this episode has given you some useful tips to create meaningful conversations in your life if you feel like you would benefit from talking with a therapist, one resource is www.psychologytoday.com or you can contact your insurance company. See you next time.